0: I'll be reading Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in a prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. We're always thankful and privileged to be in the presence of our Father and to give him the glory and honor he is due, and we're very thankful that you've joined us for that. Before we begin this morning, I'd like to offer a commendation to you uh, for two things. Number one, for who you are as God's children. Bible calls you saints. It's important that you call yourself what the Bible calls you. Number two, for what you're doing, and that is striving to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and being sanctified uh, in that process. And we're very thankful for that. We've preached some sermons, which is why I say that, about Paul's perspective through the book of Philippians. We've talked about change and personal responsibility and accountability. Uh, we've talked about an encouraged reading of the Scripture, and many of you were doing that, and some started, and we're very thankful for that. I commend you because you've received all of that very positively and you've thought about it, and you've implemented it, and you've made some changes, and I just would like to encourage you to abound more and more in that effort. Faithful people are encouraged to grow and to abound, and so I want to encourage you not to hear every sermon as a threat to your salvation, but rather an encouragement to your continual sanctification and there's a world of difference between the two. So let me begin by saying, you are doing great. Please keep up the good work that you're doing. Is that all right? There's an old preacher used to say that after every point, is that all right? That's all right. This morning, our topic is how to get your family to heaven. How to get your family to heaven. The phrase, how to, involves at least three things. Number one, someone to tell you how. Number two, someone to learn how. And then number three, some instructions to inform you how. And when it comes to how to do things, nothing can be assumed. It's not safe to assume anything. There are instructions for everything, from the simple to the complex. The simple, there are instructions for how to brush your teeth for how to prepare a boiled egg, even how to run, or how to fill a bathtub for a bath. To the complex, there is how to build a house, how to deliver a baby, how to climb Mount Everest. The more significant the thing is, the greater the instructions are. We simply cannot get more significant than how to get your family to heaven. By family, we mean a father, mother, and children, And therefore, some of the how-to will involve parenting. Of course, family is extended beyond that to include uncles and aunts and nieces, grandchildren, and so forth. And so we're really talking about whatever constitutes your family, how do we then get those individuals to heaven? It's actually a great question that needs to be asked by everybody, quite frankly. And some people have. In Scripture, there's an individual who asked this question. He didn't word it exactly that way, but his question was pertaining to eternal life and how he could have it. The man is recorded in Mark chapter 10 is where the account is, beginning in verse 17. And there are several things that stand out about this young man— in his question. Among them are these. The Bible says he ran to Jesus, which means he was urgent about it. This was something important to him. He ran to the master. When he arrived at Jesus, he addressed him as good master, which means he was reverent in his approach to the Lord. He referred to him as good. He referred to him as master. We also learned that he was Interested, He questioned. He actually asked the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He was not trying to tempt the Lord as the Sadducees and Pharisees. He was legitimately interested in the question. We also learn about this man that he was a committed individual. Again, this was not happenstance for him. When Jesus told him to obey the law and keep the commandments, his response was, All these things have I done since my youth. This was a committed individual, but he only lacked one thing. And in verse 21 of that account, the Bible says, Jesus looking at him felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. It sounds like, as you read that, that is centered around his possessions, and that was the problem. The problem is not necessarily the possessions. The problem is the heart and the attachment to them. The, the truth is, he loved his possessions more than he loved Jesus. And it's sad because Jesus loved him. Now, here he is asking, what do I need to do? And here Jesus is telling, but he doesn't love Jesus enough to follow him and give of his possessions. It's amazing and sad how often God must see this scene, that God is in heaven, and that God desires man to come to heaven, and God looks down and let man and sees man constantly choose to love something more than he loves heaven and more than he loves him. This sermon will be a two-part sermon. We simply won't be able to finish it this morning, and so let me invite you to come back this evening to finish the sermon and the material. And while it's not intentionally thought about in this way, this morning might be viewed as a negative side of things, whereas this evening would be a positive side of things. It's not the intention of it, but the point is simply this— there is some sobering news about getting your family to heaven that we need to address. And the first bit of sobering news is this. Jesus taught that most people won't get themselves or their families to heaven. He said this in his first address to humanity. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, For wide is the gate, and abroad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. As you compare those two ways and those things that Jesus said, He said the way to life is straight and narrow and found by few. Conversely, the way to destruction is wide and broad, and many will just go into it. The second thing is there are several reasons why most people won't get their families to heaven. Some of those reasons include that some will believe error. It is the truth that sets us free, John 8, 31, 32. It is error that enslaves and puts us in bondage. And Peter says and warns his audience in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 and verse number 2. Peter, addressing the brethren, said there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you. They shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. And many will follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth is evil spoken of. It would be one thing if the false teacher were the only one that was lost. That would be one thing. But Peter describes the false teachers as coming in and then many following them out. And therein lies the problem. The effectiveness of false teaching is that the false teaching is believed, and individuals follow them away from the Lord. That's Peter's warning, and sadly, people will do that. Another reason will be that they will judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. That's what Paul encountered in Acts chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, where he and Barnabas were preaching God's Word and preaching the resurrection of Christ, but they were met with rejection. They were met with blasphemy. The Bible records when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul. Two things, it says, contradicting and blaspheming. To that, Paul responds. Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God first should be preached to you. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Very often it's the case that when it comes to the subject of heaven, one person desires it more than another person. In fact, they want it more for them than they want it for themselves. And here Paul is recording that some individuals chose to judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life, and so they won't go. But then thirdly, there are those who will practice lawlessness. We talked about it last week, Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. There are some who will, number next, fall away. That's what Paul is urging. Please don't do that. Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 6. Paul opens that book by saying, I marvel that you are so soon removing from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would, listen to it, pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received, let him be a curse, as we said before. So say I now again, if any man preaches any other gospel than that ye have received, let him be a curse. The Galatian brethren were also being plagued by false teaching and error, and Paul is warning some of you are believing it. Please don't do that. In chapter 3, verse number 1 of that book, he refers to that as foolishness. He asks, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's tricked you? Who's deceived you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, crucified among you. They knew Jesus. They'd obeyed the gospel. And here somebody was coming in and trying to cause them to fall away. Is it possible? Absolutely. Chapter 5 and verse 4 of that book. Paul says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. It would be hard for God to say that any more plainly. If you do this, Paul says, you are fallen from grace. The reality is some people will fall away. It was happening in the first century. But another reason is they never grew thus becoming unfruitful and unbearing. It is the, the expectation of God that every child of God will grow and blossom more and more into the image of Christ, that we will move from babes desiring the milk, milk to grow on into maturity. That process of sanctification is expected and anticipated, and when it is not done, Peter says these words in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse number 5. He says, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And then he says this, if these things be in you and abound. They will make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Question, what if they're not? Peter says, but he who does not do these things is blind. And he's forgotten that he has been purged. He's been cleansed. He says that in the very chapter. There are those who won't do that. But another reason is, recorded to Hebrews chapter 3, and that is, simply stated, unbelief. Now, if you read Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7 on down into chapter 4, you'll notice verse number 12 when you get there. He begins by talking about Old Testament Israel, and he explains why some of them didn't reach the promised land. He explains that. And then he pivots from a discussion of the Old Testament saints to the New Testament saints, his audience. And by way of summation, he says in verse number 12, beginning this new section of thought, he says, take heed, brethren. The word brethren indicates he's talking to people who are saved. He's talking to saints. He's talking to Christians. And he says with warning, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Question, how can a brother have an unbelieving heart? Because faith is not simply something we start with God and then that's it. Faith, that part of sanctification is that which we walk by every day of our life. We keep growing in that. We keep believing in God. We keep trusting in God. We keep relying on God. We don't do that once when we're saved and that's the end of it. We don't get into the Lord and then decide, I'll just do it my way. These brethren were being lured away from Christ, back to Moses. That disbelief in Jesus was going to be a huge problem. In fact, slide down to verse 18 and notice what he says, same chapter. He says again with reference to the Old Testament saints, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. And then he says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief please see that the word disobedient in verse 18 and unbelief in verse 19 are put in the exact same sense, that the unbelieving is disobedient, the disobedient is unbelieving. And then he says this in chapter 4 and verse number 1, a return back to his audience where he says, let us therefore fear. Let us Learn from them. Let us not imitate them. Let us not make the same mistakes they made. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us the gospel is preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, listen to it, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The sad reality is there will be those who simply stopped trusting in God, stopped following God. If we had time, I would put a pen here, pivot, and then talk for about another 30 minutes on that. We'll get back to it. Circle back. But we'll keep moving. Some will build their houses on an unstable foundation. That's why they won't make it. Again, in our Lord's first address to humanity, beginning in Matthew 5, culminating in Matthew 7, near the end of that, that discourse, he says these words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall because it has been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, I liken him to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Question, what's the difference between the houses? The reality is this. Some people believe that if I come and obey God, then God will make my home a storm-free house. That's not what these verses teach. These verses don't teach that if you build your house on the rock, no storms will come to your life. That's not what they teach. And friends, I will pause long enough to say this. Can you please, and I'll urge you and I'll beg you, can you please stop interpreting God's goodness by your life circumstances? The goodness of God is not under discussion ever. The goodness of God does not fluctuate ever. The goodness of God does not change ever. And so, if a person is blessed with a marriage, God is good. He was good before your marriage. He's good during your marriage. He'll be good after your marriage. Don't count him good when you get married, then have trouble in the marriage and count God God as not being good. Doesn't work that way. God is just good, Period. Do not count it good that God blessed you with children and then heaven forbid something happened to the child and suddenly God's not good. It doesn't work that way. God is good. God never ceases to be good. There's no minute, no second, no hour, no day where God is not good. In fact, God is eternally good. He can't be anything else and be God. My point is coming to God does not... Suggest, say, teach anywhere in Scripture that if you come, the storms won't come. What Jesus is saying is the difference between these houses is who they built their house on. One person built his house on the foundation of Jesus, and he says he hears these sayings of mine— And he does them. This person was in the same audience. In fact, they could have been standing shoulder to shoulder. One person heard the sayings and did them. Another person heard the sayings and did not do them. This man is wise. This man is foolish. And the rain and the floods and the storm will hit both of their houses. And one of them will stand. And one of them was going to heaven, and one of them not. The third sobering fact is this. God won't get most of his children to heaven. God has two kinds of children. Number one, he has created children. Number two, he has covenant children. God has created children because God forms the spirit of man within him, Zechariah 12.1. God does that. The one that laid the foundation of the world also forms the spirit of man within him. Genesis one26 27, God says, let us make man in our likeness, after our image. God did that. To whom? Everybody. Every human being is made in the image of God. Therefore, in some sense, every human being is a child of God. In fact, Paul says in Acts 17, about verse 29, we are his offspring— And so, the Hebrew writer would say of God, Hebrews 12 and verse number 9, he's the father of spirits. Well, that's absolutely right. And in that sense, God wants all of his children to come home to heaven, and so he has provided for them. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 4, Paul says, who desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Who wants that to happen? The God of heaven. Peter would say, 2 Peter 3 and verse number 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel would say, Ezekiel 18, 23, God has no pleasure in the wicked perishing. Talk about the goodness of God. It's simply this. It's God's desire that every individual that shares his image come home to him to heaven. That's his desire. That's what God would love to have happen to that end. God has given things to try to ensure that that can happen. To God's created children, God has given His creation to move them to Him. So you read a passage like Psalm 19 and the first six verses of that Psalm where the creation is personified as having life. It's as if God gave the creation and then told the creation, speak to my children. And so, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showed his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night they show wisdom. It talks about there being no line nor language where their voice is not heard. What's the psalmist's point? It's that when God made the creation, he made it so the creation would talk to the created so that his created children could look up at the sun the moon and the stars and understand and appreciate we didn't do that and that's no accident it's as if the creation is a neon sign pointing us to the god of heaven god gave his created children creation but more than that god also spoke to the world In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, the second half of that psalm, it pivots from creation to revelation. And verse number seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. It is certainly the case that you could go further west and see the mountains and see the snow and see all the wonder of God's creation. It's certainly the case that you could know there is a God by the creation, but you wouldn't know what He wanted from you, and He wouldn't leave you to guess. While the creation does its job and it does it wonderfully, it can't convert your soul. Seeing the beauty of the mountains and the oceans and the beaches can't convert a soul. And so, God didn't leave you lacking. He gave you His revelation so you could know His mind. He gave His created world that. Not only that, He didn't just give the creation. He just didn't give revelation. He gave Jesus. John 3 and verse number 16, the Bible says, for God so loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who does God want saved? Every one of His created children. And He has provided things, not left Himself without witness, Acts chapter 14, Paul says. But sadly, what we learned from the Old Testament, what we learned about or warned about in the New Testament is God's created children, Romans chapter 1, did not come to Him. And more sad than that is God's covenant children. Many of them didn't make it either. It's not because God didn't try. Because God gave to his covenant children more than he gave to his created children. God's chosen special people. In fact, the language is above all nations on the earth. And to those individuals, God gave more than creation, more than revelation. God gave his presence. He told that group of people, I will be with you. He gave them the plagues. That's how they got out of Egypt. The power of God got them out. Within that framework, he gave them the Passover. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. His protection, his provisions, the water, the man, of the quail, his precepts, the law, written with the finger of God. His people, he gave them Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Joshua and the judges, Samuel and the kings, the prophets, the priests. Paul says of these individuals, you had every advantage— That's the nature of God's dealing with His covenant, people. And what do we learn? We learn of God's great lamentation that not even He was able to get His children to heaven, not many of them. In fact, God is a parent, and as such, sometimes you hear God talk like a parent. One of those instances in Isaiah chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, turn there and read along. Empathize with God, sympathize with God, connect with God. If you are a parent, deeply concerned about your children getting to heaven, God can understand. God knows that. God knows what that's like. God has felt that, and he expresses it. He's talking through the prophet Isaiah, beginning in verse number one. God says, now will I sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well beloved had the vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Please note the language. It's a vineyard and it's in a fruitful hill. But he didn't just leave it to be fruitful. No, he worked on it. The Bible says, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and then planted in the midst of it the choicest vines and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. Now, with all of that effort and all of that work and all of that planning and purposing, the Bible says he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, every parent who has ever been challenged with with some level of this idea can can appreciate the next line— Where it's God who says, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? You ever been one of those parents in the room by yourself, shaking your head, wondering, What more could I have done? What more could we have done? Well, if you've ever had that experience, then when you read Isaiah 5, you can appreciate God's having the same experience. And who's he concerned about? Just keep reading. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, not the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Amorites. No, the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. What's his expectation? He looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. You could read this kind of scenario in any number of passages, but God can understand. God can empathize, and maybe now you can empathize with God. What's God want to happen? God wants all men to be saved. What about his covenant children? Well, God loved them and gave them so many things so they could come to heaven. What's his lamentation? Can't get it done. Why not? Why is it so hard to get one's family to heaven even for God? Let me offer several reasons. Number one, I would urge, it's because of where we're trying to go. Heaven is a spiritual concept. Heaven is a spiritual destination. And you have to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And there are many challenges. The physical world prevents many from seeing the spiritual world. And there are any number of reasons for that. Among them are the things that are here. First John, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, these things are enticing. John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world, and the world is passing away, and the lust thereof, whoso doeth the will of the Father, will live forever. Well, that's number one. Sometimes this world is so enticing that it entices people to love it more than they love the spiritual world beyond it. Then there is the appearance of permanence that the world has. Solomon talked about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse number 4, Solomon recorded these words, one generation goes and another generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And it does look like that. You, you, when you were born, it's here. When you grow up, it's here. In fact, as you look backward, it looks like it's always been here. And as you look forward, it looks like it'll always be here. And that's what it sounds like Solomon saying. One generation comes, another generation goes, and the earth remains forever. And then he continues, here's what it looks like, the sun rises and the sun sets. He says, the wind blows from the north down to the south, swirls back to the north, and it just continues. He says, the rivers, they flow into the seas, but it's never full, they just keep on flowing. He says, the eye, it's never satisfied with seeing, the ear, never satisfied with hearing. In fact, he says, what has been done will be done, and there's no new thing under the sun. And so, everything here looks permanent. And it looks like this is where you ought to be. This is where you need to give your focus. This is where you need to stake your claim. And when you talk to people about heaven, that's exactly what they say. I'm living for the here and now. You only live once, they say. This is what's important to me. Now that's how they talk because it looks like it's always going to be. Another issue is the immediacy of physical gratification. When it comes to spiritual concepts, spirituality, and and, and, and eternal life, what the Bible describes is that hope is deferred, that while one day we will have it, that while one day we'll live in glory, we don't do it now. And while certainly it's the case, John 10 and verse number 10, we can live the abundant life now, but those storms and that life, well, that keeps happening to us and some people. Not big on deferment. They want it now. Spirituality, though, ultimate joy is delayed. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 24, 25, for in this hope we are saved. Well, what hope? He says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for that which we do not see, then we with patience wait for it. The world is not big on waiting. The world is not big on deferment. The world is not big on treasures in heaven when they have treasure now. And so, for many people, they simply will not give themselves over to God and look forward to heaven. For them, that's going to take too long and that's too late. Then there is sin, and it has the power of now. Right now you can have joy. Right now you can have pleasure. That's the way the Bible describes it. And you can see in the Bible people making that choice. The rich young ruler ran up to Jesus, called him good master, asked the right question, and then heard, but you have to love me more than you love your possessions. And he said, no, I have these possessions now, and Jesus is offering treasures in heaven. No, I'll just keep what I have now. There's three soils, four total, but three soils, not good in Luke 8, through 15. And what happens to those soils? Well, the seed hits it. Some are taken away. Some fall by the wayside. Some on the thorns are choked out by the cares of this life. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 16 just states it plainly. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Sin does have the power of now. It's pleasurable when we're talking to young people, let's always tell them the truth. We'll talk more about that this evening. Let's always tell them the truth. Is sin pleasurable? Yes. For a season. That's what the Bible describes it as. The reason it's enticing is because it stimulates the body. It stimulates the flesh. If it weren't, we wouldn't do it. How many times have you gone out to your car and say, I just want to have some fun. Here, I'm going to put my hand in the door, and when I do, you close it. <laughs> That's not pleasurable. We don't typically do things like that. It's because it's pleasurable. What the Bible is telling us is that is temporary. And unfortunately, that stimulation and that temporal nature, some people are willing to trade for the eternal. The Apostle Paul describes it as lacking the ability to see the unseen. If you have your Bibles, look at 2 Corinthians 4 and listen to him talk about it. Why can't we get people to heaven? Why can't I get my family to heaven? Well, the reality is some family members lack the ability to see the unseen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I, I, I say this, well, A, it's just true, and B, it's noteworthy. Every time we, we, we say a passage like 2 Corinthians 4, and we say verse 16— I know that you know it, but let me remind you, that means we did not read chapter 1, we did not read chapter 2, we did not read chapter 3, and we did not read the first 15 verses of chapter 4. Why is that important? Because Paul knows what he wrote. And so verse 16 is connected to all of that material, and he's making a point here. And the points that's being made has to do with the subject of faith, their commitment to God, what they're willing to go through. In fact, if you read up just moments before we get to 16, he'll talk about how much they've suffered for the cause of Christ and why they have suffered it. And he will talk about how they have been pressing on us and trying to ruin us. He say, well, but we have not, we have not, we have not. And he will say, but we are. We're strong. We're not cast down. This is what's happening, and this is how we're doing. In fact, let me now say it. Let's read it. Go up a few passages. Notice verse number seven. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Listen to verse eight. We are afflicted in every way, and for every time Paul says something this is what's happening to us he counters it with but we are and then he'll say something else so notice it in verse 7 verse 8 we are afflicted in every way but not crushed we're perplexed but not despairing we are persecuted but not forsaken we are struck down but not destroyed Paul how is that possible always caring about in the body of the dying, so that the life of Jesus also be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with him. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace that which is presiding to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Listen to verse 16 and how it opens. Therefore, therefore, we do not lose heart. Paul, how are you going to keep going? Listen to what he says next. Though our outward man is perishing, you do appreciate that you have an outer man. You do appreciate that you are a spirit housed in a body, living in a physical world, having come from a spiritual reality. That this physical world that your physical eyes are seeing is not the reality. That's the temporal. That's the passing away. That's the fleeting. You—if you only use your physical eyes to see this physical world, you will miss the eternal reality that gave you life. In fact, he doesn't just say our outer man. Notice what else he says. Though our outer man is perishing, yet our inner man… Is being renewed day by day. You have an outer man. You have an inner man. And it is your inner man that God is trying to get back to heaven. That inner man is housed in a physical outer man. This is temporal. This is fleeting. This is passing away. And every way you describe the outer man, you can describe the inner man. In fact, he has eyes to see so does he. He has ears to hear, so does he. He has feet to walk, so does he. He has a heart to think, so does he. And if you only feed and give attention to this outer man, this outer man will die, that inner man will depart, that body will be in a box in the ground, and it will decay. what happened to him? You don't give that man attention. He can't go to heaven. See, this man's going to keep living somewhere. This man's eternal. The Spirit of God made that man to come home with him. And his spiritual word is to feed him. And that man is to control this man. And if that man doesn't control this man, the baser nature of this man will provide. Paul says, our outer man perishing, inner man renewed day by day, but keep reading. Paul says in verse number 18, while we look, who's looking? Which one of these men are doing the looking? Somebody's looking, but who is it? Paul says, while we look, there are two ways to look. He says, not at the things which are seen. Okay, if the things that are seen are being looked upon, the outer man is looking at them. The outer man sees. The outer man interprets. The outer man knows. Paul says, but Paul said, we're not looking at that. While we look, not at the things which are seen. So what are we looking at? He continues, but the things which are not seen. Well, who's looking at the things which are not seen? The inner man can see the things that are not seen. He says, for the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Somebody has to see the eternal. Who can do that? Only the spiritual man can do that. How would he do that spiritually? Bible would call it faith. In fact, if you would continue to read chapter 5, Paul will talk about our earthly tent and this house being destroyed and the new house, the new tent being given. And then he will say in verse 7, while we walk not by faith. That word, uh, "not," we walk by faith, not by sight. That word, sight is the word for appearance. So here's what happens. This outer man goes about into the world, and the appearance of things in the world convinces him of things that are true as he understands it. And so, as he goes out into the world, he sees it looks to be the case that those who are able to be uh, 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 mean-spirited, Loud, boisterous, those who are a dog-eat-dog world, you got to get them before they get you. You climb the corporate ladder. If you want people to respect you, you get them to respect That looks like it works. It looks like we should give ourselves to the pursuit of money, to the end of everything else, because after all, money makes the world go round, and it does appear that those who have the most of it have the best lives. It sure looks that way. It appears that pleasure is the way to go, not sacrificing and service and, and giving up your rights and your freedom. It doesn't appear that that's right. Paul says, we don't walk by, we, we don't walk by, we don't walk by the way it appears. Let me ask you a question. If you were in the days of Moses, and Moses had been drawn out of the river by Pharaoh's daughter, now in the house, brought up on all the customs and ways of the Egyptians, Moses gets to be 40 years old, and let's say you're Moses, and as you walk out, maybe on the veranda, and you look out over the Egyptian landscape, and there are the Hebrew slaves, and, and you look where you're standing— Which one appears he should do? Doesn't every appearance say to Moses, yeah, I think I'm going to stay in here. What would appear that I should strip off this stuff, go in and tell my mom I can't be your son anymore. I'm going to, in fact, go associate myself with the Hebrews. That's what I'm going to do. What appearance looks like that? There is nothing that appears that that would be the case. Let me ask you this, did Moses make the right decision? Would you believe these words are in Hebrews chapter 11, Moses saw him who was invisible? Moses' inner man made a decision for spiritual life now and eternal life later, and he didn't walk by appearance. The inability to see the unseen is why so many people won't make it to heaven. There is sin and the delay of judgment, Ecclesiastes 8.11. There is ultimately the reality of who must decide. Who's going to get you to heaven? Getting to heaven is a personal decision. There's no better parent than God, and God won't get most of his children to heaven. For many people, it's because what God intended as a blessing will end up being a curse. Here's God's blessings. You have personal autonomy. Nobody can tell you what to do. That's God's blessing to you. Here's God's blessing. You have freedom of choice. Nobody can tell you what to do. God has given you that blessing. Here's God's blessing. You have free moral agency. Anything you want to do, you can do. You're you're free. That's what God has given you. Unfortunately, those blessings will be used by most people to reject the God who gave them. How do you get your family to heaven? Well, the first thing you need to do is realize you can't. You can't get your family to heaven. You can't actually do that. There will be no cheating scandals in heaven, because no one can fudge your enrollment package. No one can change your transcripts. No one can send up forged community record service. No one can grease the palm of the dean of admissions. No one can fast-track your application. No one can change your faith history. Entrance cannot be bought. It is a matter of who you know, but the one you must know is the judge of all the earth, and he will do right. Getting to heaven is a matter of faith and righteousness. That's what Peter says, Acts 10, 34. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that worketh righteousness is accepted of him. Paul professed the same, Colossians 3:25. he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. There's no respecter of persons. Ezekiel prophesied the soul that sinned, this shall die. Father should not bear the iniquity of the son, neither shall the son bear the iniquity of the father. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon him, Ezekiel 18:20. Jesus will be the one presiding. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may give an account of the things which he has done in his body, whether they be good or bad. Death will provide the meeting. Hebrews nine twenty-seven: 27, it's appointed unto me and wants to die. After this, the judgment. In order to get to heaven, you must know God and you must be known by God. Sadly, there will be people who know Jesus, but Jesus won't know them. Paul says, for after that, you have known God or have been known by God. Both of them must be true. It's not simply a matter of you knowing him. He must know you. He must approve of you. That's what Jesus says, depart from me. ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. It will be difficult because it's a personal matter for every member of your family. And so, let me just say to every member of every family, please understand this. Here's a great emphasis on you in the Bible. You. Must love the Lord with all your heart. Nobody else can do that for you. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. You have to present yourself a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus, Luke 9:23. You must die and be buried and rise again, Romans 6, 3 and 4. You must walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3 through 5. You must be renewed in the spirit of your mind, taking off the old man, putting on the new man. You have to do that. You must be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life, Revelation 2:10. You have to follow in the example and Steps of our Jesus of our Lord, for even hereunto were you called, 1 Peter 1:22, 21 to 25. You must follow the Spirit's teaching. Each person only has one life to live. Nobody can live to. Nobody can give their life for another person so that they can go to heaven. If you don't give your life to God in obedience to the gospel, and if you don't live faithfully to God after that decision for the rest of your life, and yeah, you cannot, and you will not go to heaven. And you can't blame your parents. There are some parents and there are some children who have a, a great misunderstanding on both sides. From a parental, parental view, I certainly understand it. If you are blessed to have a little baby brought into this world and what a blessing it is, or if you're blessed to adopt one, however you come into the possession of a little person and they're yours and you rear them up, however that happens, if they're yours and they belong to you and you give them everything you got, I understand that. There's a love there that can barely be conceptualized and appreciated. Sometimes parents obey the gospel or have children before they obey the gospel, and so they don't know. They don't know what the Lord teaches because they're not in the Lord, and yet they're parents. And so, they're married, they have children, they're trying as best they can to parent their child, and then later down the road, they learn the truth and become Christians. Well, a lot of water has passed under the bridge, and that child is now maybe a teenager, a young adult, and the parents were never Christians or faithful. Those parents often lament, 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 lament the fact that my children aren't faithful, I can't get my children to come, children are not going to go to heaven, breaks their heart. Then there are some parents who did as best they could with what they knew. They were faithful Christians themselves, and they did the very best they could to teach it to their children, model it before them. They're not perfect. Nobody is. And then the children grow up and still go away from the Lord. It really doesn't matter how it happened. What Isaiah 5 is telling us is it happened to God. And inevitably, inevitably, it's not the parents' fault. At some points, parents are going to have to stop flogging themselves and beating themselves up about that, which is already past. And at some point, children are going to have to stop using their parents as scapegoats to try to justify what they're presently doing. It is your present decisions that's the problem, not your past. I'm not saying the two can't be connected. I'm not saying you can't be suffering from your past. You certainly can. But if you are doing things that are not in harmony with God, you're doing that and that's going to be the problem. And if you leave here and meet the Lord in that state when you arrive on the shores of eternity, please tell me you have a better plan than to tell God I didn't do right because my parents. You don't have to read past Genesis 3 to know that won't work. God is going to have everybody accountable for their actions, and nobody's going to be in heaven who didn't choose to be faithful to God to get there. How do I get my family to heaven? On some level, you have to come to grips with the reality that you can't. Peter's word to the Jews who killed Jesus was save yourselves from this untoward generation. God's word to every individual in the audience is save yourself by coming to Jesus and submitting to him. And Revelation 2.10 says, if you will be faithful after that decision, then I will give you a crown of life. I hope you'll come back this evening. I really feel like that would be so much more positive in nature to help us understand what we can do and why it matters. Now a Christian this morning Please become one. Please believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Change your heart and change your mind. Friends, the spiritual reality is real. It gave rise to this physical reality. You and I are expected to see that and live accordingly. If you haven't, then please make the decision today. Believe Jesus. Change your heart and your mind. Confess his name and be buried with him in baptism. Rise and walk in newness of life. And if you have strayed for that, There's no reason to blame anybody. Own it. Be accountable. And you come home to God. And you and God will renew your walk. And you just do that on into eternity. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.